from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics coming to you live from the Wharton School, Huntsman Hall, Sirius XM Business Radio Studio, looking out onto the Locust Walk, the esteemed Locust Walk on a gray, dark October morning. This is Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddy, Eric Bradlow. We might have somebody else walk in here in a minute. Oh, as we speak, a third collaborator walks in the door. Shane Jensen's here this morning, guys. Shane is here, and he will be on the radio shortly. But How's it going, gentlemen? It's going great. It's going great. We, we're just getting fired up, Shane. You didn't miss anything, buddy. You didn't. You didn't oh, thank goodness! Thank goodness. Uh, we're we're going to be here for the next two hours. We're here. Some somebody's here every every Wednesday morning live, eight to ten Eastern. You can join the conversation. We would appreciate you joining the conversation. Give us a ring one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. You can also email us anytime during the show. You can email us businessradio at siriusxm dot com. Businessradio at siriusxm dot com. You can also email us on off days. If you're listening one of the times it's replayed, we're replayed maybe five times over the course of the week. You can drop us a note. We'll pick it up. We'll cover it. Um, you can follow us these days. We're on Twitter. Every now and then we're saying something out there. We follow our guests. It's a good way to stay on top of the world of sports analytics. At W Moneyball. At W Moneyball. Would love to have you join us out there as well. We will be here talking sports for the next two hours. Very curious. I've been away. It's an interesting time in the world of sports. Lots going on. I'm curious. What has caught the eye of my friends and collaborators here? Eric, Shane. Well, I first want to talk about something else that caught my eye, and I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. So um, your advisor, Dick Thaler, just won the Nobel Prize. <laughs> How about that? How so about that? could maybe, first of all, two quick things for our audience here. Um, could you first tell us, you know, he won it for behavioral economics. Could you give all of us, since it is related to what we talk about, because you know I'm going to talk about momentum very soon when we're talking about the Yankees. So could you tell us a little bit about the area of behavioral economics and also just tell us any story you'd like about Dick Thaler? I mean, it's congratulations, first of all. Well, well, thank you. Big day, Monday. Big big, big news to wake up to. A remarkable way to wake up. To, uh, full of text and Twitter feeds all about Thaler. Um. You know, mostly I'm happy for Dick because it's uh, it, there was a stretch there where people thought he was in the running, and then there was a stretch where people thought the window had closed. When um, when Bob Schiller won it five years ago or so, uh, people thought, well, there's the, people had been waiting for behavioral finance award. They thought maybe Schiller and Thaler would win it together, and they gave it instead to Fama and an economist. It was kind of a it was kind of a wide well, range. Fama French theory. I mean, there's that's the big. No, Fama deserves it, but but yeah. but they they paired Schiller with someone who was theoretically opposed to him, Fama, and then someone who was methodologically helpful in the debate. So it was like this empirical finance kind of wide ranging thing, and and it was almost it was a kind of a sad day because it felt like, well, there goes Thaler's chance, and I think it felt that way for a couple of years, and then in recent years, people have begun thinking maybe he was still in the running. In fact, people talked about him this year as as one of the favorites, and. So it wasn't that big a surprise when it happened. It's just having been kind of through that roller coaster a little bit. You never talk about it that much because it's such a big deal. But you know, it was it was um, those of us around him anyway were disappointed with uh, with his not getting it for behavioral finance. I love that it was singular. You know, they usually they, these deal. days it's like two or three. And and a lot it, of people it, this year thought he might share it with Colin Camera. 
actually when he won it. A lot of people were saying that as well as what I've heard in the grapevine. That's interesting. I, I mean, Colin's amazing, absolutely amazing, but their their contributions are categorically different. Very, I mean, very Thaler different. was the pioneer there, and he's also done such widely ranging things. I mean, this is one of the most stunning things about him, from little bitty, almost thought experiments that that kind of drove a wedge into some of the slight cracks in the neoclassical model to, you know, big policy programs that change people's lives. Do you know who has the number one cited paper in the history of the number one journal in my field, marketing science? Dick Thaler. (laughs) Is it mental Mental accounting? accounting. His his paper, Mental Accounting, appeared in Marketing Science, and it's the number one cited paper in the history, actually, of the field of marketing. (laughs) <laughs> no, I'm saying of any paper yeah, that's I, been published I, I in you. marketing. So I happen to have looked at this yesterday or Monday when it came up. But the, you want to hear something remarkable about that paper? I remember when I, when I was a grad. Maybe just, it would be good for you to could you explain to our audience since you and I can have a conversation about this for hours. I'd love it. What is mental accounting, and you know what's the what's the basic <laughs> premise? And then I'll try to relate it to the Yankees, which we're okay, going good. to get to in a second. And well, by the way, I mean, wait, just to check. By the way, are the Red Sox? Oh, oh. The Red Sox are out of the playoffs. <laughs> oh. oh. That's too oh, bad. That's, yeah, no. I mean, are, are you gonna? Is this something we we're gonna do every year now? Is that we're we're gonna do a Red Sox and Yankee elimination day? Yes. Oh, okay. Yes, All we right. are starting All today. Right. But okay. Right. But let's hear about. I'd love to hear about mental account. I mean, I know so what it is. We're, but. we're gonna do this briefly. It's, yeah. it's it's fundamentally the idea that that money's not fungible. It's, the the way money had been talked about by the economists is that it doesn't matter where it comes from, it'll be spent the same and in some optimal fashion. And the basic idea is that, no, we kind of tag money psychologically. We put it in bins. It's kind of the cookie jar theory psychologically. And, and therefore, how it gets spent depends on where it comes from. And, there, and that's just one example. You can go at – basically, money gets partitioned. Here's my favorite thing about that paper. How many, how many references – do you know how many references are in that paper? So this is a 1983 paper. It now had Eric. Just, I didn't know that it was the most cited paper in marketing. It has 5,700 5, citations, Google citations, over 5,700. Do you have any references? When he wrote that paper, how many papers did he draw on? Yeah. Short. There are nine. I was going wow. to say <laughs> less than ten. And there, three of them are his. So basically, he cites six other people to write this paper, completely original. That has spawned all of the work that that came after, and that's Thaler. That's Thaler. By the way, I'm sure at some point, we, just turning it, relating it to sports, I'm sure if we had a general manager of a team, they could talk about how mental accounting evaluates how, uh, affects how they spend money. Like I'm sure they have separate bins for how they think both about the inflow of money and the outflow of money by position. Like, oh, it's, it's, it's one salary cap. We'll just spend it. I don't think they think about it that way. <laughs> and it would be fascinating to think to ask them how they mentally bin dollars when they're mm. thinking about these into separate accounts. And and psychologically it seems like when players evaluate contracts Good when point. they when they they think about you know, signing with a particular team. I don't think they think about money as completely fungible as well. I think the same contract from one team is not the same as a contract from another. I mean, the 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 quote unquote home, you know, sort of host city discount or whatever that that does, sometimes um, seems to influence decisions. As an example of that, and there's lots of other examples. Of that. Well, either way, I want I really did want to congratulate you. The minute it came out, I was thinking of you, and I could imagine. It was how mostly. Pro- I mean, you you obviously were the main, main <laughs> yeah, right. influence on this. So. so so sadly, the Nobel Committee did not cite our paper together. Well, but well, the, 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 but it was the, behind the, the it was right behind the scenes. We were all thinking about that's it. right. That's right. So. So the, the Thaler is connected to this show in that we've done our work on sports analytics.
athletics. And as a result of that, we've done years of consulting with sports teams. And so he's, you know, he's he's very real world in that he's tried to be in organizations, not just in finance and savings, but, you know, sports organizations, helping them make better decisions. And it's, it's been a fun it's been a fun enterprise. So on the on the baseball front, th- there was a moment there where I thought I was going to come back to the show for the first time in a while. And you guys both would be, you know, down and out because your teams got knocked. But, well, right. But it's only me that's down it's now. Only Handling Shane. it in a way more dignified way than my colleague over here. <laughs> yes, that is true. That is true. You know, I, as the yeah. Red Sox were getting eliminated and the Yankees were moving on, you know, you know my motto eventually, Moving Shane, on. Well, moving on to another the next game. game. Yeah, to another sir. game. We're going to get to that in a second. But I knew 200 million would kick in eventually. Yeah. You know, that's that's always my motto those, when those it comes scrap, to the Yankees. Those scrappy underdog Yankees. Thank goodness they pulled it out. But let me have let me show you some data. So I, I so this is actually I got this this morning. I was looking at this. So you know I love to talk about momentum because it pisses you guys off. But I'm not even going to use the word momentum. Non stationarity. So there has been 75 teams that have gone down 0-2 in a five-game series, okay? So the first question is, this is, now let's first talk about this. Does the team that's up 2-0 have momentum? What's the chances that they're going to win the next game and it's going to be a sweep? A lot of people think about it it's the other way. Like, I, I'll get to game five in a second. How do you separate momentum from being the better team? We're going to get to that in a second. So what number, what, what fraction of those 75 do you think the 2-0 team has won. So 75 series have started 2-0 for one team or the other. I'm going to answer without any calculation whatsoever. Yeah. 48. 48 out of... Uh, 50, I, I, 50, I, think, 50. I think I think a good 65 out of those 75 teams have probably... The 2-0 teams have won. You're too high. Low so, 50s. Yes. Yeah, so let me ask you a question, both a question. If the answer was 65 out of 75, which, by the way, is way over... Would you think, would you start to think that there's momentum no, for that team or no. they're just the much better team? Not only that, they have a head start. So there's an even simpler answer. They have a head start and now it's just flipping coins for one one win versus three. No, 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 no. I didn't say win the series. I meant win three to love. I meant, I'm going to break it down. I've got, did they win three love? Did they win three to one? Did they win oh. three to two? Yeah, that's oh, a different oh, question. Oh, I thought you meant win question. the series. Oh, by the way, if you mean win the series... You're almost exactly right. It's okay. 66 out of oh, 75. Right. Way to go, Shane. No, no, no. no. Way to go, Shane. It's 66. Out, but by the way, it's not even that rare for the team down 2-0 to come back and win. It's happened 9 out of 75 times, which is 12%. I'm just saying. It's how, many like, time, how many times has it happened that a team's been down 3-0 and come back to win? That's only once. Oh, it's only okay. been once. So it's trying interesting. To remember, so by, by the trying way, to remember when that no, happened. No, it's an interesting you, you, compa- know, you know what it... You, you, Look at this. This is the, <laughs> just for our fans that want to know, that might have been the 2004 Yankees Red Sox. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, <laughs> extra impressive it, it might have been. By the way, if you haven't seen the movie Fever Pitch, let me just suggest, despite it being so painful for me to watch, it, Jimmy Fallon, this is a wonderful, wonderful movie about the love of the Red Sox. And it's it's really a great movie. And it's, it, it all emphasizes that's about big, the, That's big of you to acknowledge. It's a wonderful movie. By the way, let me do what I should have done to begin with, which is the back of the envelope calculation for how often a team down 2-0 wins the series is right. simply how often a coin is heads three times in a row. Right. Which is essentially 12%. That's exactly right. Okay. And it turns out that that's the empirical. That's exactly the empirical <laughs> right. distribution. Yeah. Um, it turns out the number for 3-0 is 60%, which is not 
that different. As a matter of mm-hmm. fact, any confidence interval would cover 0.5. Yeah. Um, and it would even cover the belief that the 2-0 team is maybe just better. But they're not 80% better. Yeah. They're 60% yeah, they're, better. Now, now that you've yeah, gotten to yeah. Game 5, here's yeah. the other side of it. So now conditional on it getting to Game 5. By the way, that's happened 15 times. It's not a huge number, but it's happened 15 times. And you're specifically talking about getting to Game 5 with one team going up 2-0 and the other team then winning 2 That is correct. Straight. It's only of the type where it's gone, like, like we're in right now with Cleveland and the Yankees. And by the way, we haven't even talked about home field, which is going to edge things. Well, we're going to get to that in a second. What, are we going to spend two hours right, in this? Whatever. Mm-hmm. The answer is 9 out of 15. The team that's gone win-win, sorry, loss-loss, win-win. Loss-loss, win-win. Yeah. 9 out of 15, not statistically different than .5, but certainly not worse than .5, has won the series. Mm-hmm. So... But, however, despite 9 out of 15, which is 60%, whatever, it's a small sample, I'd rather be the home team that had the better record during the regular season who has potentially the Cy Young Award winner on the mound. Yeah, as those, opposed you just named three good reasons that have nothing to do with momentum. So this No, is, I'm arguing against momentum. I mean, I think we I'm can agree. I would rather be, but let me just Enjoy say. your coin flip tonight. <laughs> <laughs> and I wish I was. Uh, my team was still in there flipping coins. Yeah. And I stand by the I stand by what I said. I do think there's momentum. I think it's in the Yankees' favor, and I think the Yankees are going to win tonight. I do believe I, it. You I, can I, argue against I, me I forever. We'll come back <laughs> next <laughs> week, and you'll be able to either say I told you so or I didn't tell you so, and it's not going to have well, it won't much have anything to do, to do with, with momentum, momentum necessarily. <laughs> but I think there is momentum. Do, do you have a memoriam for the 2017 Sox? <sighs> I don't really. Ha- I mean, you know. They, no, not really. I mean, I, I, I really like this team. I thought I, I, I wish they'd gone farther, but I, I kind of feel like they just were, you know, they felt like you remember, the coin flip. You remember two weeks on Wharton Moneyball, I thought the Red Sox would win the World Series. And yeah. the reason I thought it was because every crucial game during the season that they had to win, like the Yankees would get within three, and then the Red Sox would win. The Yankees would play the Red Sox. The Yankees would, you know, win the first two games of the series. Okay, yeah. then the Red Sox would win the next two games. I, I, and, I, and I think the Red Sox were legitimately a better team than the Yankees. I think yeah. if they played like a... 30-game series, the Red Sox would win more often than the Yankees, but that's not how the playoffs work. You flip a coin, and sometimes it doesn't work out. Oh, darn. I, you know, we don't have a 30-game playoff series. Um, that's what baseball I mean, 30 needs, game right would be dissati- I wish. 30-game would be dissatisfying. We probably want to make it an odd number, but... Um, <laughs> that would be so that's baseball. Not, that sounds like such a soccer but thing to do. you could argue, we don't have a 30-gamer, right? But we do yeah. have, to win the World Series, you have to win a 5, a 7, and a 7. Yep. So, you know... I'm not saying there isn't randomness. It's not 19 combined, but you do have to beat three different series, and you know it is of moderate length. That's all I'm commenting on. If each one is won by chance, then isn't the aggregate won by chance? Yeah. No, well, no, never mind. No, that it, it, no, no. You can't no, just no, add no. up the games because breaking them up into these shorter series almost that increases the randomness. I mean, basically, it, uh, yeah, it increases. Yeah, no, it increases the randomness. But I mean, in other words, you have. If let's use your coin flipping example, I got to flip the coin three times with heads. No, it, it's by chance. But it's you know, more coins you have to flip in your favor, the less chance is going to play a role. 
yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I, yeah I, clearly, clearly. I just don't think there's enough coins in play. I don't think there's That's enough right. game yeah, even, to really even sort of, that. So to, to, is, to give any kind of discernible advantage to a, a, a better team if one exists. This is Wharton Moneyball. We are here every Wednesday morning. We haven't had this crew together in a few weeks, but uh, delighted to be back, and we'll be rolling with this crew for most of the fall. You can jump in or join us, one eight four four wharton one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Guys... Are the Eagles for real? Are you Are you believing? No. I got a nod from Bradlow and a no from Jensen. No, I do not think the Eagles are for real. Really? Everybody does. Oh, I know. <laughs> We're in Philadelphia, of course. If they, no, if, no. If, the national people love. I mean, people love the Wentz story. People well, are I mean, looking for a good team. Well, Look, Shane, people are go- looking for good teams right now. Know, people are time. looking for good teams, and they're, and they're not seeing a lot. Yeah. And right. the Eagles are. No, Definitely, but, by record, one of the better teams. But I mean, honestly, do we really believe well, that can this I ask you, team let me ask you a question. is going to so compete what do you, with Green Bay and these types of things at the end of well, the season? Well, let me ask you a question. How much will you update based on tomorrow night's game, which is the Eagles are at the Panthers? Yeah, those are two four and one teams. The Panthers have looked very good this year so yeah, far. But it's hard to even. I no, mean, the Panthers. No. It's hard to figure out if they're good or not because they were. They went to the Super Bowl and then they were terrible. Right, but what does when some sense then, when when you say you're not buying it, like I think you and I both agree, their odds of winning the Super Bowl are, you know, maybe I've certainly have updated it a little bit positively yeah. since the beginning of the season, but it's not like I'm putting them up there with a Green Bay to win the Super Bowl or even right I now feel like Kansas we're really City or even excited. New I feel like we were really excited about the Eagles around this time last year too. What well, was the Eagles' records five that, games in last year? Again, it was that— They I were think, probably three and two. They had won the first three games yeah, for sure last okay. year. And uh, then uh, I think they were they had lost the next couple. But a lot of it has been around wins. And, and yep. that's just the optimism of this new prospect, essentially. And it, right. it was in big play last year, and they were cutting him slack. It's just always, is he going to be what we think he might be? And he keeps on kind of going down that path. And he had the career game last week. It's just one game, but that fuels all this optimism. But let me no, also, and, I, let and me, I mean, I think the optimism is justified because, I mean, if, you know, obviously having a, an elite quarterback. Is, is is a game changer for your entire franchise? Yeah, for like right? fifteen years. It, well, <laughs> twelve. Yeah, whatever. yeah, that's right. And so, so I can understand having a lot of optimism because if we are correct, if people are correct, and Carson Wentz is going to be an elite quarterback for you know a decade or something like that, then yeah, I mean, people should be very excited. I just I'm not convinced. But yet. let's also let's also do just a little bit of probabilistic updating yeah. here. So I think part of the reason people are also excited is not only do the Eagles appear to be let's call it up from pride. Mm-hmm. The Cowboys appear to be down from prior. So yep. the Eagles are sitting here right now with a two-game lead in the loss column over the Cowboys. And so a lot of people are starting to do this mathematics, which is to say we've got a good shot to win the division. I, I'm not saying they're as good as Green Bay and or anything like that, but they've got a good shot to win the division now. Yes. And I think you're, you'd have to say they're at least as good as any team in the NFC West. I mean, they're as good as the Rams or Seattle or any of those teams, potentially. And so, you know, a lot of people are thinking, why can't we at least have the one or two seed in the NFC this year? And then, it's as you know, it's one less coin flip, which that the Jensen rule will yep, tell you that's, that's the right. number one predictor. You may have a second home game, 
we might have a first home game, meaning, you know, I have to put this way, you're almost in the NFC championship game. I'm not saying you're going to win that game. It's a long way off. But that's why people are updating. They're yeah, thinking, no, no. We, we have a two-game lead in our division. So, by, by the way, let me give you some massive Peabody numbers on this. We have Philadelphia yeah. up to number seven now. Now, granted, there's not, it's not, doesn't take that much to get up there. But who else in the NFC is above them? Atlanta and Green Bay yeah, at the exactly. minimum. Atlanta, we have number three um, and a good two points ahead of Philadelphia. Green Bay, a half point behind that. Um, and Seattle. We still have mm-hmm. Seattle up there. And interestingly, above, we have... Above Philadelphia. Yeah, and then we have Minnesota and Carolina kind of right behind them. So they're in the same group, essentially. I don't understand the line. They're going to Carolina to play a Carolina team that we think is about the same. And they what's should the be, line? They should be getting three points, and they're giving three points. The Eagles are giving three points to the Panthers. Maybe yeah. I'm reading the up the rundown wrong, but the, I, I see Eagles and Panthers minus three. That optimism. No, that's, that's, too that's Panthers minus three. Okay. I've got that wrong. Well... Yeah, that's Panthers minus three. But it, good, good, good. So it's exactly it's exactly yeah. what I think it ought to be. Okay, but let me just say the following. Um, again, none of those teams are in the Eagles division that I heard in their division. That's none right. of those yeah, teams are in the division. And, no, I mean, and so I think they've got a very good chance of winning the division. They look certainly right now like the best team in that division. I just think that I mean this this first round buy that you're talking about that I I am less optimistic that they'll be able to kind of get into the conversation because for example Atlanta is I think on paper a better team and also has an easier division with which to work with I think because I mean yes Carolina is competitive but after that you do I mean, know I mean you do know that well, I'm just saying record wise yeah. I'm just saying. There's no team, you know, obviously that's my division because the Bucks are in it. There's no team in the NFC South right now with a losing record. There's no team. The the Saints are two and two, the Bucks are two and two, the uh Panthers obviously are four and one, and yeah, the Falcons are four and one. So I'm just I'm just commenting yeah. that every team in the yeah. NFC South maybe, is, is, is maybe at least wrong with that evaluation. Somehow the NFC uh East seems more intimidating to me. With the Giants accepted, um, but look, look at this. There's only the NFC South. Flipping through the other conference, there are only three in our top ten. There are only three AFC teams. The top two: New England and the Chiefs, and then Pittsburgh, who looked flat out awful. Oh, awful. Yeah, awful. no, but, terrible. But are you finally believing the Chiefs' story here? They, you know, after the Week One game, they flew up they our rankings. They keep rocking it, man. Exactly. I mean, it's hard not to buy into them. I, I again, I. I mean, I've watched Andy Reid in the playoffs enough to kind of, yeah. I mean, do we really think that that they're going to win three playoff games? You mean to <laughs> win they, the world? Are, are, are they the going to need? A, they're going to need a two-minute drill some point, right? Right. Yeah. This, so, and and yeah, we all know that that's not going to work out. But it's nice. To, it's, it's it, you know whether or it, not it's, they make the Super Bowl. See, it's yeah, good to see them right. that, and it's and it's different. Right. I like the change of pace. I, mean, no, I get a little I tired of seeing New England and Seattle su- and Green Bay up there. How, let's, how, yeah. su- how surprised are you? Forget. Let's. How surprised are you that three weeks into the season, the Jets are three and two, <laughs> the Patriots are three and two, and the. Um, the oh, the Bills whole, are three and two. The whole division is three and two. How, well, I think the Dolphins might not be, but either way, how surprised are you that very, first, very, very, right? I mean, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm disappointed that the Patriots are only three and two, but I am even more surprised that the Jets are three and two. What I think is that's going the biggest on surprise with that in the team. NFL this season? And yeah, I, I, I love it because in the beginning of the year, people were dogging us for having the Jets not the worst team in the league. Yeah, and for the first couple of weeks, Rufus was basically picking the Jets to cover these big lines. And I think the amount of loss of first I mean, I, and we we just caught so much flack. It's like, look, the numbers just don't suggest that they're the worst. Team where are they or, right or, or, now? They're bad. Don't get me wrong. Twenty seventh. 
So, so Eric and I la- a couple weeks ago, Just I almost exactly we, where we started. Them, we were ta- we were talking about uh, you know the sur- uh, survivor pool and how easy it was going to be to do use a, do a survivor it's pool this year because there was five. Just we, picked the we winner. Identified no, no. we identified five, five teams, teams that we thought would be had the potential to be historically bad. Yeah, and I mean it was the Jets, the Forty ers the Colts, um, the Browns, probably the Browns, and. Uh, one other one. Anyway, but then then literally the next week, we watched the Bears beat the Steelers, which is ridiculous, yeah, the by the way. the Bears one of those awful teams. The, the Jets have now gone, th- uh, actually two. have a winning record. The Colts, I think, didn't, haven't been, I mean, I think they beat somebody. They did. They won only, the only the 49ers have been holding up their end <laughs> as a truly awful Well, let me just tell team. you, just so you guys know the numbers, so of the, you know, whatever, 27 yeah. million that, uh, of Survivor pulls up on ESPN. Forget the one that I'm in, where yeah. we're still in undefeated. Only my son just told me only eight percent. We're in week five. Only eight percent on the ESPN Survivor pool after five still, weeks and are that, still undefeated. How, how is that? Like most years, is it much larger than that? Much Not even. Larger. Yeah, I would assume. But so. only eight percent. Yeah, that's fabulous. All right, fellas, let me ask you: Are you paying any attention to the college game? Yeah. So who 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 are you paying attention to? What's 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 jumping out to you about how that's shaping up this year? Well, I mean, you have to tell us how big a shock and shock was it that the numbers three and four teams lost last week? I mean, Michigan weren't Michigan and Oklahoma three and four in some polls, not the Massey Peabody. It's a little high for Michigan. They were certainly top ten in most. They weren't in ours by, by any. By Maybe any Michigan means. was seven. I thought they were yeah. both certainly well in the top ten. Oh, you oh you's been in everybody's top five, and I'd say Michigan is in all the subjective polls, the expert polls, top ten. Okay. Um. So the OU game was unabashedly a big upset, shocking. Not, and Iowa State had beaten them something like twice in fifty-five years, some beautiful thing like that. Michigan was much less surprising, but also that the, the, there's Bill Conley calculates something called turnover luck. How many points are shifted by turnovers? And they had something like twenty-four point negative twenty-four points or something. And who did turnover luck? Michigan. Michigan. Yeah, they had yeah. Five that, was, that was a monsoon of a game. That but, was a. But it wasn't Michigan, and we didn't basically we didn't update our rankings on Michigan at all. I mean, they were like seventeen before, and they're seventeen after. We just is like that's kind of not that big a deal. Um, OU different question. OU's different question, and and we, and we moved them down a little bit, but that was a big loss. Is there ever a, is there ever a chance now that I mean I know if you and Rufus have talked about it, is there ever a chance now that the Big Ten might not have a contender? I mean Ohio State no, lost. No, 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 no. I, you're going, I, the, yeah, wrong, you're I, going I, the wrong direction on that. But I, but I th- but I mean Penn State's still undefeated. No, no. It? But let's say Penn State takes its lumps. Oh, I mean mm-hmm. Wisconsin. I guess let's imagine there could. At least, you're saying there's going to be a one-loss team. But let's say that no one goes undefeated. Wisconsin maybe loses in the Big Ten championship game. Penn State takes its lump somewhere. So Ohio State, Penn State, Michigan, Wisconsin all have losses. Someone you think Cade's emerging from the Big Ten? Yeah. I've, I've, this is, I think, the the right question. And I've really been grappling, like, how quickly can we understand the way the season's shaping up? Yeah, that should be an advantage of good analytics, is that you see it kind of crystallize before other people see it. And the way it seems to us is that last year was a year where at this point in the season it looked like there was one great team in four out of the five conferences. They were really separating themselves. And even in the fifth conference, the ACC, there were two teams. It was like Ohio, I mean, it was both Clemson and um, Louisville. But there was this huge separation between the best team in the conference. And so it felt like it kind of doesn't matter what's going to happen. Four of these six teams or four of these five right. teams are going to emerge. This year, it's kind—it's more at the division level. There's a clear favorite in each 
division. And so it's kind of surprising. It's more than kind of. It's very surprising how confident we are who's going to play in each title game. Like the conference title games, which is now you're picking two teams, so the joint probability should be quite lower. The you're confident of that in the Big Ten? I'm sorry? In the Big Ten, you're confident of that? Yeah. 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 So I'll, I'll walk them through real quickly okay. because we, we would put greater than 50% on the exact matchup in four out of the five conferences at this point in the season. And we have a lot of uncertainty baked into our sim. That's just how much better one team seems to be. And if it's not one team, it's two. There just there isn't, except for the Big 12, there's just not as much mystery as you might expect. And, of course, we're going to be wrong somewhere along the line. But looking at, you know, spinning it out, playing our sim with lots of uncertainty, it looks like there are lots of zero and one loss teams emerging at the end of the year. So, Big 10. Wisconsin is an absurd 97% chance to win the West. I knew who was going to win the West. I was talking about who you guys have winning the East. We have Ohio State, and we've always liked Ohio State, even after they took that loss against um, Oklahoma but if not Ohio State, Penn State. So and of course, one of those two yeah. matchups is going to happen, and the likelihood of one the winner emerging with zero or one loss is really high. So okay. it's either Penn State, Wisconsin, or Ohio State, Wisconsin, and the winner of whoever that is is it's likely going to, to yeah. go to the playoffs. And they're, okay. they're going to go. And, they're, and it's a similar setup in the ACC and the SEC, where you have, in those two conferences you have undefeated teams on both sides still, legitimately undefeated teams. I don't follow the SEC West as much. Who is the number you, one team in the Alabama, SEC? Alabama, you do. The oh, East, that's West. East who's, who's the East? Georgia. Ah, okay. So they've got they've got a pretty clear gap between them and who follows. And so, I mean, they, look, it's not that they're not, that they're all going to come through undefeated. It's that there's, room, there's slack in the system. And they can make it. The chance of Alabama and Georgia playing in the final is quite high. And the fact that and the, and the odds of one of them emerging with zero or one loss, which is all it takes, in which the power is all it conference. takes. Right. So we think that that's going to happen I mean, right now. The numbers suggest that's going to happen in those three conferences: ACC, Big Ten, and SEC. The conference that's a disaster; they're going to play themselves out of it. Just they're going to eat each other for lunch. Essentially, it looks like the Big Twelve, which everyone agrees. And then the question mark, and this is what's going to turn the whole thing in either either a boring year for the playoff or like make it really interesting is the Pac-12. So if the Pac-12, if someone emerges, and it looks like it's going to be USC versus Washington with high probability, though, Stanford's getting there, Washington State's still undefeated. We don't believe in them, but they're undefeated. USC-Washington could readily, the winner that could readily emerge and just roll right into the playoff to be boring pick, one from each of the four, not a big deal. But if something goes wrong in the in the Pac-12, this is what you're kind of hoping for. If you like controversy in college football, this is what you want. Two conferences die, meaning they don't they don't kick out a champion with less than two losses. And then you've got these three, and you've got more than just conference champions. You've got viable seconds and viable thirds down through into the conference. You're How not, do you choose? You're not choose being, a, you're not being a, a, some, saying something heretical here and saying that there could be neither someone from the Pac-10 sure. or the Big 12. We're, you're saying we, one of the power, con- one of the other three could have its conference champion and a fourth team gonna, and leave those other two out? It's going to happen one of these years. And this year, what, what we think, I mean, the numbers suggest the, 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 the key question to ask about a conference is, are they going to produce a champion with less than two losses? That's the key question. Mm-hmm. And it, odds are against, literally odds are against us. It's less than 50-50 that the Big 12 will do that. Now, the Pac-12, we still, still think will. But wouldn't it be fun? It's probably two-thirds. So if they don't quite do it, if something goes awry, if you want to pull, this is what I'm saying. If you want to pull for chaos in college football this year, well, you what, know you, I pull what for you chaos. want to pull for, I'm telling you where to look and where to, and where to pull. Pac-12. 
because that's the key. It's going to happen in the Big 12 anyway, and it's not going to happen in the other three. What happens if there's – this is the kind of case I thought you were talking about. What happens if there's a one-loss champion from the Pac-10 – Pac-12, and a one-loss champion from the Big 12. It could happen. Yeah, now I know. That could five. very well happen. Yeah, and absolutely. who goes? Uh, we don't know. Now we're talking well, that's real the, that's politics. The, no, but that's the that's the chaos I thought you were referring well, the, to. Here's where the thing. Now that's, I, got, I mean, but that's a little bit more of a conventional chaos. Right. Right. But right. It's also, that's also, un, it's only, it's happened one year with, when the the first year of the conference, when Baylor, and, when Baylor and TCU. But here's the thing. In a quantitative show, that's, well, that's, tertiary right now because what matters is who's in the consideration set and from this distance the best we can say is this is who the consideration set's going to be now when we get closer when we're more and more sure who's going to be there we can talk the finer gradations of the politics of tcu versus washington but from this point from this vantage point the main thing is who's likely to be in the consideration set. also how just quickly how likely do you guys have alabama and clemson as a repeat in the championship game um I can figure that out. I don't know. These things are less than you would think. So, for example, consider the bracket you think most, we all think is most likely. Consider Bama, Clemson, Ohio State, Washington. Okay? What's the likelihood? That's the most, that's the, that's the favorite out of every conference. It feels almost inevitable. What do you think the probability is? The actual probability that that's the bracket. 6%. So it's it's wow. it's it's, it's wow. quite it's quite the most and it's the most frequent by far. It's twice as most like twice as likely as the next one. But it's still unlikely. There's just a lot of teams, a lot of things that can happen. Guys, we have to get to break. We've done a full quarter. we got three quarters to go. Come back and listen to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics every Wednesday morning, live 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddies Shane Jensen Eric Bradlow. Our fourth collaborator, Audie Weiner, is on sabbatical this semester. He's been here some. He'll probably be here a little bit more, but mostly he's out of the country. Doing Audie Weiner things. But this crew of three is back together for the first time in a while, and we're going to be rolling through the rest of the semester mostly here. Come back and join us. Give us a shout. You can join the conversation at one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. You can also email us. We're happy to take your emails. Sometimes we take them live real time on the show. Businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And I know I'm planning on tweeting at W Moneyball about your 6% number, which is much lower than I would have guessed for those four teams. For, so, the, uh, for, the, for the seemingly obvious bracket. Please follow us at W Moneyball. At W Moneyball. That's Eric Bradlow, of course. We, as often, have a guest coming up in the next half hour. The next two half hours, actually. In this half hour, we are thrilled to welcome Tom Taylor to the show. Tom is a sports and science journalist working as a reporter and researcher for Sports Illustrated. He has a Ph.D. from this little school out west, Stanford. You may have heard of it, in the fields of aeronautics and astronautics. He also writes a professor of sports column for Sports Illustrated for Kids. Tom, welcome to the show. Awesome. Thank you. Tom, delighted to have you. By the way, just we'll, we'll, we'll tell you tell it later, actually, later, later as well. But you can follow Tom at his website, dailytomtaylor.com, dailytomtaylor.com. Com. Tom, where are you calling in from today? Uh, I'm calling in from uh, the, the Bay Area. The Bay Area. Well, goodness gracious. Thank you for getting up this morning. Very, very good <laughs> yeah, of you. It's a, it's a little early. <laughs> well, we, we're always especially appreciative of West Coast guests who join us. Your, your, um, your SI piece in April caught our eye, and this is a topic that in some form or another has, has, has emerged as a theme in our show, 
and an important theme in sports analytics. This issue of um, basically sports science and measuring individual performance at the kind of granular level and all the privacy issues that that stuff raises. So we're talking about a, an article you called Football's Next Frontier, the Battle Over Big Data. Can you tell us a little bit about what that article covered? And then and we'll, we'll want to go into much more detail. But can you give us a high-level summary of what that article was about? Yeah. So basically, um, back in the, in the spring, um, uh, there's a company called Whoop that makes a, a wearable band um, that tracks um, some various things like um, heart rate variability, um, motion, sort of sleep. And they, um, they signed a deal with the NFLPA, not the NFL, but the Players Association, where all NFL players um, this season and onwards, I think, for the, the next few years, will basically be given a whoop band. Um, it's obviously up to the players whether or not to use the band, but there are some kind of um, <laughs> there are some like monetary reasons why you might want to use the band. Um, one of the things they're talking about is potentially allowing players to sell the data that they record using that band, mm-hmm. um, which <laughs> is obviously. Um, I mean, it makes sense to allow, give the players some ability to control the data that they collect. Um, but I think there is obviously a question as soon as you start to put a monetary value on what is kind of like health data. Right. So it's, and this is, this is, the, this is surely just the first move in what's going to be a complicated set of moves over years across all the sports leagues. One of the things that most interests me is that it, it seems that this is something the NFLPA just kind of jumped out ahead of and i'm curious to what extent that's true did they did they you know this is teams have been asking teams monitor players in lots of ways team, different teams monitor them in different ways and it introduces this issue was to what extent was this the nflpa saying hey w- before we get asked to do any more before the league gets their clutches in us any more deeply on our personal data we're going to go cut this thing out we're going to cut our own deal outside of it I think it was it was it was partially that, but it was also the fact. So last year, uh, I think it was December or November, the NFLPA actually set up what they call the One Team Collective, um, which is I, I don't know the, the exact definition, but it's kind of the idea is like the sort of startup accelerator. They will invest and get engaged with um, early startup companies, um, and Whoop, uh, I believe, was the first company um, to get on this deal with the NFLPA. So. Actually, the NFLPA also owns a percentage of Whoop, so it's not it's not just that they've um, partnered with them; they've actually like sort of gone full in in some way. Wow. Um, yeah. So it's it's partially that, and it's also I think partially the idea that they want to get, as you say, kind of like ahead of the game. And it, I mean, there is it does kind of make sense to want to be the leader. Um, over maybe the NFL or over other leagues or whatever. Um, I guess the question is whether or not you're leading in exactly the right direction. <laughs> so you, you sound like you have some skepticism about it. Is that fair to say? I I am I am very so I, I've covered a lot of sort of like of this health related data um, and I'm or sort of data collection and I'm I'm kind of skeptical about exactly what it is we're dealing with and what are the effects in general. And that's not just a whoop thing, that's like a lot of these companies. Because um, most of the companies, they they want to collect the data and they say, you know, this will improve your health. Um, but if you mention the word medical, um, suddenly they back off. 
because, and I understand why, like if you're medical, you're FDA, um, you're, you're, you're ruled by the FDA and it's, it's a lot more complicated, but I, I don't know how you separate what most people would consider to be health from what most people would consider to be medical. I mean, they are <laughs> intimately connected, right? Tom, can you give us an example of something that you believe the data can provide legitimately, pretty pretty clear evidence that they can, and then something that you think may be more, more questionable, that some may claim or, or at least would like to do that you am not sure they can? Well, so... Yeah, I mean, so, you know, obviously we can measure people, like, very simple stuff. We can measure someone's heart rate um, while they exercise. And, you know, we have a lot of, um, like, science, a lot of, like, idea of, you know, where heart rate zones should be during exercise. As a, as a general rule, it may sort of, you know, be slightly personalized for different people. But we, we do have some idea of, you know, what that heart rate, you know, how to um, correlate that heart rate with um, maybe whether or not the person is... Um, overly tired or things like that in terms of you know one example is sleep you know they're measuring sleep um by activity um and you know different people probably move <laughs> like you know some people are restless sleepers um we whether or not we can like fully correlate uh that to a good understanding of sleep but also whether or not it's whether or not everyone needs the same amount of sleep. You know, it's it's we, we're getting to this point where we're we're going to personalize the suggestions that come out of this. But yeah. I, I don't know whether we have a a clear enough idea of medical science or relevance. Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. And, uh, yeah, one of, one of the examples um, which I think I mentioned is like heart rate variability. Now a lot of companies are now measuring this. But if you talk to a doctor who, you know, is intimately like, like knows a lot about heart rate variability, um, they will kind of often question it, like whether or not we're taking, we're reading too much into data that might be interesting, but whether or not you can really prescribe something from that. So Tom, let's just stay with this one for a quick second, because I, I do see this coming up more and more in articles, both popular articles and I believe in science articles, scientific articles as well. Heart rate variability is essentially how quickly your body, heart in particular, ramps up to handle vigorous exercise and then comes back down to rest. Is that right? No. So it's <laughs> basically... <Okay. laughs> Good. We asked the right question. Yeah. So heart rate variability, and, and there are different ways to measure it, like different people have different algorithms. But basically the concept is that beat by beat, your heart rate isn't like a finely tuned like metronome. There is some variability in, like if you counted 10 beats, the space between each of those beats wouldn't be exactly the same. So there is some kind of like a little bit of like variability in that heart rate. Now, um, sometimes that heart rate variability is very low, and sometimes it is very high. You know, like your heart is kind of <laughs> like hanging out and just relaxed and just like beating occasionally, whatever. So, um, so that's what it is. It's, it's kind of a measure of how that beat by beat time changes. And and the question is whether there are personal signatures, or and is there is there is there is that supposed to be related to anything that we care about? Well, so this is often used to relate to whether or not um, 
someone is tired, whether or not they're um, ready to go for exercise, these sort of things. Now, a lot of the, the heart rate variability studies actually came out of looking at people who um, had suffered serious cardiac events, um, you know, like a cardiac arrest or something like that. And they, they noticed that the people, I think people that had suffered those in general had a lower heart rate variability, so their heart rate was much more like consistent, beat by beat but also that the people that had greater variability, um, I believe, showed better outcomes. Um, so that there, is, there, is, there is, you know, evidence to indicate that heart rate variability is related to health and that having a more variable heart rate means maybe your, your body in some way is less stressed and um, is, is more healthy. Um, and, and there is, you know, they have, there have been some scientific studies with, with athletes and things like that, but whether or not we can actually prescribe what someone should do based on that is a slightly different thing. So, Tom, this is Eric Bradlow. I wanted to jump in here. You've been talking about uh, a little bit of, let's call it, training, health, etc. I know you yeah. also have some thoughts about on the field. Like, let's imagine we could measure for football. Let's just take football as an example. We could measure on the field performance, uh, performance yeah. on plays. And we could build, whether it's using a machine learning model or a regression model, regress that on things that would come off of a wearable device. Like, you know, Tom Brady, the greatest of all time, which he is, Mr. Cool. The I goat. wonder what his heart, bra- heart rate is like mm-hmm. when it's a two-minute drill and he's driving down the field. So do you ever see a time where this type of wearables is related in a statistical way to outcomes and teams then say to optimize performance we need to get more players that have this type of let's call it health or biometric profile oh yeah i mean yes so so in terms of like collecting this data and being able to look at what's happening to the players i mean this stuff is fascinating right and you know like I'm sure a lot of fans would love to know what, you know, for example, in you know, last year's Super Bowl, like what was Tom Brady's heart rate doing during that game? <laughs> like, um, was he, you know, was he hyper cool, etc.? So, and and if that's you know, even good, we don't even. I I have no I have no knowledge as to whether that's even good. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, don't we think it's to, necessarily a linear function. I have no idea what it is. We have to measure that, it as a precursor for figuring out whether it's even correlated with an outcome that we're interested in. Right, and that's. I think there's a danger that, like, if we if we have this kind of like average concept of like, you know, this is what your heart rate variability or heart rate or whatever should be, and then you know, before last year's Super Bowl, you know, for example, if Tom Brady's heart rate isn't in that zone that you wanted it to be, do you cut him from the game? <laughs> do you do you like, um, you know, are are we in danger of maybe chasing the wrong metrics because the the in any sporting event, the metric that counts is did you win? <laughs> right. So we're talking to Tom Taylor. Tom is a, a scientist and a journalist, science journalist for Sports Illustrated. He wrote a provocative piece last spring called Football's Front- Next Frontier, the Battle Over Big Data, on the players' union jumping out ahead of the teams and cutting a deal with Whoop which uh, we've just learned they're also an investor in, so they're going to they're profit from this a little bit. You know, what does it mean for the data that teams have access to? 
because teams would teams you know you you can you can worry about them exploiting it in some sense, but they also have legitimate interest in maximizing the performance of their athletes and developing them and resting them when they're overworked and th- and for this to be a coordinated by the team effort they would need access to those data so what does this mean for that and to, um, before you answer Kate's question just to build on that could you please break your answer down to their own team's data versus competitive team's data? They're not, they're not going to get competitive team's data. Okay, we, so we, know, we, we can, we, we can that. eliminate that part then right the, there. But for their own team's data, Tom. Right, okay. So, I mean, the like in essence, you know, in an ideal world, obviously, you know, a team wants to have access to as much, as much medical um, data as it can on its players to, um, you know, ensure that they're healthy, make the right decisions, um, they, they, I think there is a question on whether or not teams do make the right decisions or would make right, the right decisions. There are definitely, um, you know, stories in history of either companies or like companies outside of sports or actual sports teams making decisions based on some sort of medical data that basically didn't seem to pan out um, and, and may have hurt um, athletes or, um, or employees. Yeah. Um, and, so, you know, for I mean, when we talk about NFL teams, you know, few head coaches are um, doctors, you know, so or, or or even like, you know, a lot of the, the trainers aren't necessarily, um, you know, they might be ex-players, they might be, um, you know, they might have coached, but are they, do they have not just the understanding from a doctor's point of view, but also, you know, for some of this stuff from a, like a more research and analytic point of view to understand the limits as to where they can use that data. Well, um, you know, I think, I mean, gosh, Tom, you, you and I know that even scientists have trouble with this. So exactly. h- how much can we really <laughs> expect from teams? And even if they're, you know, some aren't going to grapple, you know, purely from the player's interest, but some yeah. are, And but but it's hard. And this is, I mean, heck, every everybody has read, been frustrated with how many times they read a new article in the New York Times about what kind of nutrition is supposed to be best for you. This is a field that just struggles back and forth. My concern about this, to the extent that I have one, because I, I totally understand protecting the privacy, my concern is that it will inhibit the collaborative effort that's needed to actually make good progress, because it's going to involve some some you know some bumps and it's going to involve some mistakes but it it, i i'm 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 less optimistic than ever because it's stacking up to be a union issue and players against teams and maybe it needs to be that way to protect the players privacy but that's going to inhibit the progress we need to actually get as much out of this new physiological data as we could right and but i i think to some extent i i I, I have definitely reservations about the Whoop deal, but I also, to some extent, feel that we actually kind of need this because it's easy to dance around the issue, um, but we actually kind of almost like need some like actual cases of whether or not it's good or bad um, to actually sort out like how far we can use this um, mm-hmm. and 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 how and what are the privacy limitations? What mm-hmm. are the rules that should be? Um, I don't and. <laughs> You know, no one wants to be the guinea pig, but I think, in a way, the NFLPA having this deal um, and then maybe potentially getting into this like argument maybe with the league or the teams over like who has access to the data is maybe what we need to like sort out who does who should have access to the data, like how should that data be used. 
I would. This is Eric Prado again, Tom. I would at least want my own data. Can I have my own data? No, I'm just. I'm being serious. I'm saying if the team's not going to get it, can I have my own data to know whether the training I'm doing or my on-field performance matches what's happening in training? Yeah, we. we right. But so, you, you need to get, you have your data, but you also need good guidance on how to interpret it, which is Tom's biggest concern. Absolutely. And then, and then the team's going to say, can can I have some of that? Can we agree on what I can use? To help optimize the and that's, yeah, that's, and I mean I think a general theme for the future not that transcends this particular like kind of sports medicine issue is can, is, is it even going to be possible to have this concept of control over data and certainly you we agree that you know maybe it's possible you know to have control over your own data and not to have other teams have access to it even kind of accidentally or whatever but you certainly. If you give up some subset of data, you are going to lose control over the interpretation of that data. There's no way of retaining control over interpretation. And so that's actually kind of a a more general issue for the future, I think. And I I don't think we necessarily always know how the data can be interpreted. Right. Because, you know, we we as, as, like, human beings happily like give over our data all the time i mean i'm i'm not but like a lot of people have like dsa pre when they get to the airport so they've they've decided that they'd rather give over some amount of data um for the convenience of getting through an airport line quicker right um but you know is it possible that they know all the consequences of the data that they've handed over or what that data might potentially show um I, like I don't, I don't know. There are there are definitely lots of cases of data that's being released that's supposed to be anonymized and then is actually traced back to the the people you know whose data it is. So. Right. Well, Tom, this is this is really interesting. It's a conversation we're going to continue, I'm sure. And <laughs> and you've given us a great example of how it's progressing in one corner. I think that probably sheds some light on how it's going to progress in other corners in the future. Very much appreciate you joining us, especially joining us from the West Coast. Awesome. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you. That was Tom Taylor, sports and science journalist working for Sports Illustrated. He's a Ph.D. in aeronautics and astronautics from Stanford, and he also has an MS in journalism from Columbia. So that's putting together a nice nice combination. You can follow Tom at Daily Tom Taylor. At Daily Tom Taylor is his Twitter handle. You can follow us, of course, at, at, Wharton Money, at W Moneyball. We have just followed at Daily Tom Taylor. That is half the show. We have another half to go coming up after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. This is Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddies Eric Bradlow and Shane Jensen. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. You can join the conversation one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. You can also email us businessradio at siriusxm.com, businessradio at siriusxm.com, or you can follow us, tweet at us, at us. Our Twitter handle is at wmoneyball at wmoneyball. We follow our guests. We tweet our own stuff periodically. We try to stay on top of the world of sports analytics. We are just off the phone with Tom Taylor talking player analytics at a, at a very physiological level and the privacy issues those raise. And we're going to change gears now and talk about player analytics in a different way. Jay Jaffe is joining us. Jay is a contributing baseball writer again for Sports Illustrated, SI.com. He also makes television appearances on the MLB Network. You may have seen him there. 
He's got um, a, a book on the Hall of Fame, the, the Cooperstown Case Book, and you can follow Jay on Twitter at J underscore Jaffe. Jaffe's J-A-F-F-E-E, at J underscore Jaffe. Jay, welcome to the show. Hi. Yes, it's one uh, J-A-F-F-E, one E. Oh, one E. Oh, my, my bad. We got we got it wrong in the rundown. Our apologies. Jay Jaffe okay. with one E. Jay, where are you calling in from this morning? Uh, I'm in Brooklyn. Brooklyn. Well, that's a, that's a little more convenient time. Our last guest called in from San Francisco. So, uh, ah, jeez, oh wow. Okay, <laughs> exactly. So, if you feel like you're doing something here, you know, it's not quite the sacrifice that the other guy was doing. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'd be up anyway. I've got I've got a 13 month old daughter. <laughs> ah, all right. Well, Jay, appreciate you joining us. Um, how you know we're going to talk Hall of Fame analytics and and historical players, but curious, how involved are you in the in the in the, what's playing out on the field right now? How how consumed you know, are you? I mean, I, I've, I, I was doing, uh, I, I covered uh, the wild card game and uh, game three at Yankee Stadium. Um, that's about all I'm going to do uh, as far as uh, on-site stuff, but I've been doing the, uh, the instant recaps uh, uh, for the Dodgers series and, of course, watching as much of the rest of it as I can. Those four, those four game days get a little tough yeah. uh, with the overlap and, and the way that, uh, uh, unfortunately, not everything is stream- streaming, so you, it's, it's tough to have two games up at once sometimes, but... Uh, uh, certainly saw as much of much of the other series as I could, and uh, uh, very surprised that the Red Sox went as quietly as they did, for example. And uh, obviously, uh, seeing the Nationals on the brink is kind of a surprise too. Right, right, right. What? Any other thoughts on the on how the playoff field is shaping up, and any thoughts on the big game, the elimination game tonight in New York? Yeah, I, and Jay, well, just just to interrupt for one second, I just have to ask you, since I have a, a real baseball person, this is Eric Bradlow. Do you believe in the concept of momentum, oh, and do you think that the Yankees have <laughs> momentum going into Game Five? Uh, you know, I'll, I will. I will forever uh, rely on the Earl Weaver uh, uh, chest that momentum is the next day's starting pitcher. And, and you know, if you're yes. in Cleveland and you've got Corey yes. Kluber going at home in a Game Five, you know, that's 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 uh, uh, that seems like a pretty good bet to me. Perfect, Jay. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Um, any other thoughts? That that's on. Uh, what about the NL? Do you believe in the Dodgers? Are the, are the Cubs you know, going to close I, out the Nats? A little bit more. I'm a little bit more um, uh, confident in the Dodgers than I was a week ago. Um, uh, you know, seeing uh, see, seeing some of the bullpen stuff. Mostly, I think seeing you Darvish pitch uh, that outing. I think really underscored to me that uh, uh, the rotation is not just Clayton Kershaw. Although you know Clayton Kershaw did not look great the other night, uh, they're going to need every, you know everybody in that rotation to step up. Uh, and they're going to need Dave Roberts to be almost as flawless as he was uh, in Game Three in in handling the bullpen. I thought that the first two games I was a little uh, uh, less than fully impressed with uh, uh, the bullpen's performance and 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 how quickly uh, uh, he pulled some of those guys. Mm-hmm. Do you consume baseball more analytically because of the work that you've done with the with the Jaws system, which you want to hear more about? Has that changed the way you're even following baseball, thinking about it? I mean, you know, as sabermetrics in general, I think, you know, kind of, I was reading Bill James back when the abstracts were, uh, uh, you, you know, were new, and I, you know, didn't have uh, the, as much access to the full slate of games as, as we do now and, right. and, and whatever, but I, especially, I think, coming back to baseball in the mid-90s, um, you know, after going to college and, 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 you know, and finally getting my own place, my own TV and cable TV and all that. Uh, I think that, you know, it's 20-plus years of that. That's, you know, understanding on base percentage, understanding that uh, uh, pitcher win-loss records are, you know, are don't tell you anything. I mean, I, that yep. stuff is so deeply in, in, ingrained in my thinking 
uh, you know, and, and trying to understand, uh, you know, the, the, the major developments that, that, that come down the pike and, and uh, uh, writing about those. Yeah, I, I definitely, it it's saturates uh, everything that I think about when I watch baseball. Um, Jay, is there one, is there a development in the analytics world recently that is, you know, you've, you've named some that are kind of fundamental building blocks and that sure. are ingrained for us now. What do you think is the next, of the stuff we've seen recently, what's the next most likely to become a fundamental piece? Well, I think, you know, pitch framing over the last few years has become one that, that really I think, uh, uh, I, th- I think about a lot. As, as, as to what's next, you know, the, the, the stuff that we're learning about, you know, from StatCast about, uh, um, you know, about like player, player range uh, in the outfield and the importance of, of getting a jump and things like that and just reaction times. Uh, there's just so much in stat in Statcast that I think that opens doors up. But I also think we have to remember, um, you know, that not everybody cares about uh, uh, you know the the uh, the decimal uh, uh, miles per hour that uh, the ball leaves the bat or the angles and things like that. It has a, you know we could demystify the game just a little too much uh, for the taste of the casual fan. Interesting, very interesting. All right, well, let's talk a little bit about the Jaws system and the contributions you've made to the Hall of Fame conversations and essentially performance evaluation, but at, at kind of the career level. Can you can you describe for us and our listeners what the Jaws system is? Sure. Uh, the Jaws system is a way of comparing candidates uh, for the Hall of Fame to the players who are already in uh, using wins above replacement. I use the baseball reference version of wins above replacement uh, because I think it does uh, the best job of the available systems uh, over the longest time frame. Um, we've got, uh, you know, 140 plus years of Major League Baseball to analyze. Uh, you want to equalize uh, as much as you can for, for scoring levels uh, and park le- and, 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 and variance in, in, in ballparks uh, and you know, do the be- you know, give our best estimates for uh, defensive contributions as well as offense. Uh, you know, I think that uh, wins above replacement is a better way of comparing than saying, uh, you know, this guy has 2,000 hits here, this guy had 2,000 hits there. Uh, what does that mean? Um, you know, I, it's uh, so. What I do is I measure each player. Uh, you know, using wins above replacement on both the career access. Uh, because career totals are important, but also uh, what I call his peak, uh, which I define as a player's best seven years uh, at large, uh, because there are a lot of uh, short career players who are in the Hall of Fame because of what they did in a few of their best seasons rather than uh, you know, sticking around for 20 years and, and, and uh, collecting milestones. Jay, so, Jay, why seven? Seven, you know, I found seven to be a sweet spot. Um, I, you know, I could tell you that it was uh, completely scientific. It was not uh, back when I... Can, can I say it feels? I'm, I'm I'm the least baseball person at this table, but it feels broad for me. I, I would think the peak would be sharper than that. I guess is the no, well, you know, the problem there are seven is a seven turned out to be a good number when I started doing this. It helped to explain short career guys like Sandy Koufax, Hank Greenberg, Ralph Kiner, guys who had very short careers that are in the Hall of Fame. Uh, it really throws into relief just how good those guys were relative to relative to. Uh, their peers who stuck around longer. 
Um, so, I mean, you bring it up, uh, this is uh, Shane, uh, you bring it up as, as something that is a little bit arbitrary, but it sounds like it is actually data motivated. It's something yeah, you know, that Seven Year came up with. It, it is data motivated. And I, when, I, when I started this at Baseball Prospectus, which was using a different version of wins above replacement than we have now, with a lower replacement level than we have now, uh, it, it really did stand out. And there was more science to it. I have stuck with it in part because the metric has become more popular. Uh, and it's still easy to understand. I, th- I, I thoroughly believe that uh, one of the attra- one of the appeals of of, uh, uh, of the metric uh, as it's gained traction is its simplicity. I mean, WAR itself is complicated. JAWS is fairly simple. JAWS is just you know using WAR uh, to count things in two different ways. I take the average of those two uh, to make the JAWS uh, Jaffe wins above replacement score, uh, and it's just an easy index. So you can say. This guy has 65 jaws. This guy has 52 jaws. The average Hall of Fame third baseman has 51 jaws. Here's how they stack up there. It's not, a, you know, it's not an. It doesn't cover everything. It doesn't cover postseason, historical importance, things like that. But it's a really easy first cut method to use when you're trying to uh, determine. Does this guy look like a Hall of Famer? So, Jay, I have two questions, but let me take them one at a time. Um, when you compare them to the Hall of Fame, um, obviously there may be a bunch of people that, according to your metric and others, doesn't deserve to be in, all, in the Hall of Fame. So we have a lot of, you know, in statistics, we talk about mm-hmm. trimmed means. So instead of taking the average of people in the Hall of Fame, why don't we give it to the top 5%, the bottom 5%, there could be errors. How does your system or how does any comparison not use errors, past errors made, and therefore it's the wrong comparable set. Well, I think you, you know, I think you have to understand that that uh, uh, past generations were working with with imperfect information, and this there the standards, uh, so, you know, this there was really not much of a definition of standards. The Hall of Fame, I don't think we really knew what the Hall of Fame was for the first ten years of its existence, maybe even longer, and there was a whole wave of. Players in, and uh, inducted in the in the 40s and 50s uh, that I think you know yeah we probably wouldn't always uh, you know consider them Hall of Famers now but you know I think if you start with the average you get a, you get a sense of who belongs and who doesn't and the idea is that you know this is this should be a merit based uh, system uh, if you were only going by the top five or ten percent uh, you know you've got a much smaller Hall of Fame and it's very clear by now that that's not what the Hall of Fame is, that it is, it's, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I mean, it is, you know, somewhere in the top one or two percent of every players who've played, but it is not, say, these top strict one percent, and there are a lot of ways to look at it, you know, postseason contributions, for example, which I don't measure, uh, but I do talk about when I, when I evaluate players and, and do consider, in, in, you know, the grand analysis, um, you know, are something that had a massive influence on early voting, and I think still have a place in the discussion. Um, but you know, you do get away from uh, this being just a number, you know, just a strict mathematical system uh, to understand that there's more than we can measure uh, when it comes to understanding what makes a Hall of Famer. We're talking to Jay Jaffe. Jay is a writer at SI.com. He is occasional MLB Network guest. He's also the author of the Cooperstown Casebook. You can follow Jay at J underscore Jaffe. Jaffe is J A. F-F-E, at underscore J, at J underscore Jaffe. Jay, r- real quick, high-level question. I'm going to get back to Eric with his follow-up. But the high-level question is, is it the case? Like, What is the rate of entry into the Hall of Fame, and has it changed much over the years? So, I mean, at, a, at the very highest level, are they, they're sitting there, and they're letting in, you just said, 1% to 2% of it's, active yeah, players? Yeah, 1% to 2% when you incorporate the, the veterans committees, which kind of sweep up after uh, the writers 
the writers have been lately they've been electing two or three players per year uh, in the past it has not been so generous um, historical levels of representation are way down for players after 1969 uh, and that's one of the one of the things that I've really tried to stress to the to the to the writers uh, the BBWAA of which I am uh, a part although I'm still a few years away from getting my own vote uh, is that uh, you know, if, even if you're just looking at what the right, who the writers have voted in, they they are they're not electing players at a fast enough rate until very recently. Um, there's a whole swatch of players missing from the 70s and 80s, I think, uh, that should have been recognized and and were not because writers were voting for two or three guys per year on their ballot that had 10 slots, and now they're filling it out, uh, you know, much more, you know, to much much fuller in terms of uh, the average number of names per ballot, but. Jay, that you seems know, like something that would be easy to show, the rate over, you know, just kind of the trend okay, so over time. What, what I was, what, um, I use uh, the, the, for levels of representation, I, I talk about uh, players per team per year, uh, historically. Uh, right now, we're below 1.0. If you look back and say, you know, even, you know, if a guy had a single appearance, that counts as a year for a Hall of Fame purposes, but we're below 1.0. Every year from, say, you know, the, the late 80s onward, uh, we're at, at, in the mid-2.0s in the 20s and 30s uh, and huh. about 1.5 uh, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Uh, we're, we've fallen way below that. And, you know, it's not to say we have to be equaling that, but uh, it does suggest we're missing maybe about 20 guys or, or maybe 30 guys from, from uh, long periods of history. Uh, and that, you know, even basically that election rates have not kept up with the rate of expansion in the major leagues. I've, uh, this is Eric Bradlow again. I have specific questions about specific players, but before I get to that, um, is war comparable across time? Like, you is know, a war of, because you're going to compare them to people. There is an argument yeah. to be made that there should be more uh, historical adjustments uh, to it. I think that, uh, I think it's something you want to keep in mind. You know, 19th century players did not play as long as schedules. Uh, as 20th century players, there were sometimes you know 100 games in a season, 120 games in the season became standard for a while. Uh, even up until the you know early 60s, it was 154 rather than 162. So you want to be careful there. Again, you know this is a first cut system. You don't need to be you know you, you don't want it to be a binary system where it's like yes no. You want to be like it looks this way, but let's consider the next level thing. You know what contexts here could we be missing obviously you have less data the further you go back when it comes to fielding uh you don't have play-by-play data uh before a certain point you want to you know the more information you have i think the better you know the 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 more you know the the more accuracy we've got i think uh with the methodologies but so you want to keep an open mind here uh the further back you go knowing that you you know, you've got imperfect information. Uh, just to follow up, actually, on that, specific to the fielding, is that one of the reasons that you uh, uh, focus on? You mentioned that you use the baseball reference specific uh, kind of formulation of war. Is is there a little bit less of an emphasis on the fielding component? Is that part of what makes it more comparable no, across what, areas? What, um, the main emphasis, the main reason I use the baseball reference one. Well, yeah, I mean, yes, there is more. I think they're, they're they do better with with fielding long term, but it's also uh, it has to do with, with, with crediting pitching. Uh, the Fangraphs version of wins above replacement is driven by strikeouts, walks, and home runs, uh, fielding independent pitching stats. Uh, the baseball reference version is driven by runs allowed. Um, you know, with, with rising strikeout rates, uh, there's less, there's, there are fewer balls in play. 
uh, rising home run rates obviously going with that. There are fewer balls in play. There's less influence of the fielders on uh, what's happening. Uh, you know, you go back to the dead ball era, you know, there's guys are striking out two or three men per game. Uh, there's rarely a home run. There's much more importance placed on fielding. Uh, you know, and there's much more importance placed on a pitcher's ability to, you know, to get those ground balls and to strand guys. Uh, and I think you want to be going more, but you know, more by uh, the total runs allowed. Because if you don't, you've got pitchers that are basically not valuable at all. And I think that's not a defensible position, uh, you know, historically. Yeah, I, I actually agree totally with that perspective. And I, kind of my sort of way of thinking about that perspective is. Focusing on something like runs allowed is taking into account the context in which that pitcher actually performed. And that actually is what you would want to do for kind of a retrospective you yeah. know, evaluation yeah, of that we're not, pitcher. We're not trying to, yeah, we're, we're not trying to predict the future. Right. You know? I mean, the, the sort of focus on fielding independent pitching and strikeouts and, and, and walk rates and stuff like that is, is probably a better idea if you're doing something prospective. But obviously, the whole point of your enterprise is entirely a retrospective yeah. evaluation of what that pitcher yeah. actually and, did. And we have learned so much even, you know, since the, say, the fielding independent, uh, you know, what we call the defense independent pitching theory dips uh, kind of came into vogue 15 years ago. Uh, you know, for example, now I think we have a better understanding, uh, even especially the last five years with StatCast uh, uh, type measures and, and, and all that, uh, is the importance of, of generating soft contact. Uh, you know, before it was like all pitchers are equal, you know, or basically equal in terms of their ability to prevent hits on balls in play. They don't have much influence on it. Now we know that some pitchers are vastly better than others in terms of uh, preventing hard contact, promoting soft contact, things like that. So Jay, you had, this is Eric Bradlow again. You had mentioned that you know maybe we're short twenty to thirty players in the Hall of Fame. According to the Jaws system, could you tell us um, which players, in your view, are the I don't know two or three or five players that you okay. think and are deserving to be in the is Hall of Fame? The sweet spot for this generation. Actually, me and Eric, we grew up watching like the the, the, the Yankees Dodgers World Series of the seventies. Just perfect ten year old stuff for us. Yeah, that's that's about where I am too. Um, okay, going back to the 70s, I would say uh, Ted Simmons, the catcher for the Cardinals, uh, Bobby Gritch, the great second baseman for the Orioles and Angels, uh, Lou Whitaker, Alan Trammell, the great double play combination for the Tigers. Uh, Alan Trammell were, got very serious consideration. He almost made yes, it. Yes, he in. did. He got he into the got, 60s, I think. He half consideration. He got, he <laughs> not, only in his final year on the ballot did he even get half of the support he needed. Um, his numbers are very comparable to Barry Larkin, who was, who was uh, elected in in uh, 2013, uh, he had, you know, he was much more durable than 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 Larkin for the course of his career, and had uh, like shockingly similar numbers. Um, going back a little further, Dick Allen, uh, the great slugger, Minnie Minoso, the pioneering uh, Latin American ball player. Uh, you need to be careful understanding the the career interruptions. Uh, that happened for both of those guys, uh, which is another reason why I, why I look at peak score. Uh, you know, Minoso encountered the color barrier at the beginning of his career. Allen uh, encountered a ton of racism, uh, you, know, in, uh, you know, both in the minor leagues and in Philadelphia, and I think those things contributed to shortening his career. Um, you know, so wow. understanding that these guys, you know, were dominant players for a shorter time, uh, even if their career totals fall short, 
uh, I think you gain an appreciation there. I, I haven't heard you mention uh, a couple of pitchers that I wonder how they would score on your list. So, you know, the classic names out there, Kurt Schilling, Mike Messina, yeah. Andy Pettit. Uh, Where yeah, do, I haven't gotten to the steroid era. Kurt Schilling uh, and Mike Messina are definitely, uh, to me, uh, the next two starting pitchers who should go in. Obviously, Schilling is a very controversial character. Uh, I don't consider that stuff uh, in my... Uh, analysis. I mean, I do consider him my now the scope of my analysis, but it's, numerically he is more than qualified, uh, especially when you start thinking about his postseason contributions. Um, Edgar Martinez, uh, Larry Walker, uh, two of the best hitters of their generation. Uh, you know, when you adjust for the context of what they were doing, even Walker playing in Colorado, even Edgar spending most of his career at DH, the numbers are still very, very strong, strong enough to to justify voting for them. Um, you know, Tim Raines was one that I, you know, campaigned for for years. Uh, I was just overjoyed to see him finally get in. Um, uh, coming up here, Chipper Jones, Andrew Jones, uh, whose defense was magnificent. Um, Scott Rowland, uh, who's uh, going to be a, a first-time candidate on this year's ballot, and I have a lot of concerns about uh, uh, whether he's going to even stay on the ballot. Um, let's see, I've covered just about... Most of the guys I've named them, but obviously there's a separate discussion to be had about uh, uh, Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens and, and uh, uh, the context of what they did, and I wrote at length about that uh, in the book, understanding you know, where the steroid problem came from and, and how to, you know, my best way of, of, of judging those guys, I think, uh, you know, understanding you know, when the rules were in place and what the rules were and, and all of that. So we're talking to Jay Jaffe. Jay is a SI.com journalist, occasional MLB network guest, and the author of a book, The Cooperstown Casebook. He's got a, a he's, he's, he's been advocating for a while and having some influence with his method of evaluating players' jaws, and we're talking through some players and the methodology there. Do you have anything you want to share on that last topic? You're like, I don't know if yeah. I want to go into it or not. Like, well, how, I mean, how should we evaluate it's a, it's a players? can of worms to open, but I do think that you know, there's a difference between allegations that happened before Major League, Major League Baseball had testing in place and what happened after. You know, if we've got, you know, firm proof in the form of a positive test or, or you know, or, or, or a bust or an investigation, I think that's different from the allegations. Even if there's, you know, even if there's some proof, uh, it's to me, you know, when you've, when you've got uh, uh, Major League Baseball have, lacking the power to enforce anything, you've got a protected, you know, an unprotected stretch of highway the speed limit really doesn't matter. Um, you know, you're not, you can't go back and hand out tickets for somebody going 80. Uh, you know, if you heard he was going 80 yesterday or, you know, or 10 years ago, you, you know, you can't write a ticket for that. So I think you have to just acknowledge the best of the era. And, you know, to me, it really does come down to Clemens and, and, and Bonds. I don't think, you know, when you, when you, when you look at McGuire's stats and Sosa's stats and things like that, they still come up short, you know. A bit what about Rafael Palmero? Because I mean, he certainly yeah, had the career three thousand. He certainly had the career longevity or yeah, the career he, totals. He, he scores. He, he scores right around the average first baseman in Jaws. You know, I think if people want to hold the test against him. I think that's their prerogative. I mean, they do have a positive test to point to. Mm-hmm. They do have a lot to wonder about. Um, and you're saying, by the way, you're saying in Jaws, I was actually thinking that a player like Sosa, who, if I may have this wrong, I think he had three seasons above 60 home runs. It might be yeah. four. So he, his seven-year war using in Jaws isn't so high that it makes him a no. Hall of... It's not. Interesting. No, it's not. Because he only had... 
he only had a few years where he was, you know, he had three or four years where he was, a, 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 you know, a strong offensive contributor. But at those years, by those years, he deteriorated defensively. So I think he has like one year where he's got like about ten WAR, two or three where he's got like, you know, five to seven, uh, and then wow. the rest is. I mean, that's which we know five to seven WAR is about an all-star caliber player, mm-hmm. maybe you know, fringe MVP candidate, um, and then the rest is, you know. I think you know solid player, but not great. So he's he's below the line in right field, which the line in right field is slightly higher because it's a little bit skewed by Babe Ruth and uh, uh, Hank Aaron uh, and uh, Frank Robinson and, and and Stan Musial at that position. It's just it's just a little bit higher. Uh, I do kind of do a little bit of smoothing to sort of equalize, so it's not too radical, say between left and right field, because you've got a lot of interchangeability there uh, mm-hmm. with some players, like Ruth not playing the Sun Field wherever he went uh, in, in his career. I do, you know, I, I, I classify a player by where he had the most value over the course of his career. So Ernie Banks is a shortstop, even though he played more games at first base, things like that. Um, what, what about uh, Manny Ramirez? I think he's an interesting case of, of, of exactly yeah, what you've been talking you know, about he, as well. He's, he's he, you know, he scores fine on my system. He's uh, uh, it, but the two the two positive tests, I you know, I well, right, yeah. I mean, tough. I yeah, I guess I was more f- very tough to get past. But yes, the defense knocks him down. He still comes. He's such a great hitter. He still comes out to be uh, an above average candidate just based on Jaws. I think you know when you when you understand the violations that he had. Uh, I think it's it's tougher to vote. Well, for let's him. talk. So, Jay, again, this is Eric Bradlow. Just you know, three players who will be coming up soon. Just love to get your you know what's sure. how does Jaws score them? Um, okay. Let's start one by one. David Ortiz. David Ortiz does not score very well by my system uh, because he spent eighty seven percent of his career as a DH. Uh, I do think he is going to get elected eventually uh, because of his postseason contributions. Uh, and his uh, traditional statistics, the 500-plus home runs and all that, I do think even that he is going to get past uh, the uh, allegations regarding the uh, so-called survey test uh, because Major League Baseball has said uh, that those tests should, you know, the leaks should not be taken at face value. Okay, let's go on to someone that we all agree is going into the Hall of Fame first ballot, Derek Jeter. Uh, Even with the dings he suffers uh, through uh, some horrible defense, uh, which I think was not appreciated so much at the time, but comes into a sharper relief uh, it, via the advanced stats. Yeah, absolutely. I think he's he belongs in the Hall of Fame, especially you consider the postseason stuff as well and his broad influence on the game. Uh, he's you know he he stands a chance of being the first unanimous candidate. And let's get to the you know one that at least Shane and I who do a lot of this stuff think is maybe historically great. How historically great was Mariano Rivera? Uh, best reliever of all time. No. Okay, so it, there's no doubt in your view that no. I mean he's going into the Hall of Fame. We all know that. Yeah. But you're saying uh, even according to Jaws, like he's won. Yeah, I feel like he's. Pro- I mean, I, I would I would have said that he would have an even better chance of having unanimous uh, well, ballot than Jeter. He, but maybe the whole relief he's thing. Of Jeter in line. So yes, by that token, he does. I think even Chipper Jones, who's coming up this year, has a better chance because he's first in line. And who wants to say no to a guy who had, you know, 2,700 hits, 400 plus home runs. 300 plus batting average, you know, 400 on base percentage, et cetera, et cetera. Um, getting back to Mariano, he, the caveat is that Dennis Eckersley scores higher in Jaws, but the, the seasons that push him higher are his starting pitching seasons. Um, so you got, I, when I evaluate relievers, because it's such a small set, I do often uh, 
show with and without Dennis Eckersley in the set. And I do look at uh, uh, other measures of, of, of pitcher value besides uh, raw war because I don't think raw war does a great job with uh, relievers. Jay, let me ask you one final question, and it's one that could lead into the next half hour, but we don't have the next half hour, but maybe we can do this conversation later. Eric often advocates for like a, the, a pantheon, like an inner ring among the Hall of Fame. It, it, the best of the best. If you were to try to draw the line around that inner ring, how might you draw it? Oh boy. Um, it, well, actually, there there is a way. I mean, one what I in my in my book, uh, I do identify uh, the top tier of players, uh, the ones who are ahead uh, of the uh, average at their position in terms of career and peak uh, and jaws across the board, all three and. Uh, as of a few years ago, that number was 75, um, and we did something at SI uh, called, you know, the 75 for 75. It was the top 75 Hall of Famers. Now, that excludes some guys who you'd think would be there, like Jackie Robinson, because he had a short career, so it should not be taken strictly. I think you could, go, you, you could probably, you know, winnow that down, uh, you know, if you were going to the top five of the position, you'd probably get down to 50. I don't think you could get much lower than that, though, uh, if you were talking about an inner circle. Interesting. All right. Let's have that. Let's get you back on to talk about that in well, more detail. Let's do that another when, when it's around Hall of Fame ballot that's, time. That's great. Happy to talk to you guys. Jay, this has been great. Really appreciate you taking the time. All right. Sure thing. Guys, that was Jay Jaffe. You can follow him at J underscore Jaffe. Jaffe is J A F F E. He's an SI.com writer, also the author of a new book, The, Keep, the Cooperstown Casebook. That is three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning. That's Dion Simpkins, sound engineer, associate producer Dion Simpkins bringing us out of the bottom of the hour. He's manning the board this morning. His orange beats by Dre on and his Eagles, Philadelphia Eagles are rocking the NFL smile this Wednesday morning. Patty Hall, producer, boss lady, stepping in for Matt Dots. This is Cade Massey hosting with my buddy Shane Jensen. Eric Bradlow, Audi is out and about today. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. You can join the conversation. Please do. Give us a call. Patty, standing by, sitting by, waiting for your phone call. 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow us on Twitter. Patty, when she's on the board, she's like tweeting real time. It's so exciting. At WMoneyBall. At W Moneyball, we have just followed our two guests. We tend to follow our guests. We're just off the phone with Jay Jaffe talking MLB analytics, especially career performance evaluation, especially as it pertains to Hall of Fame. Gentlemen, we've got a few topics we need to cover. We, we, we always want to talk games, rolling into the weekend, talk football games. We've got, of course, some Thursday night stuff coming up. But before we do that, there was a big news story. This is what I thought Eric would have started with this morning. This dreadful, this dreadful thing that happened last night. What do you make of it? It's a nightmare scenario that the U.S. men's team got knocked out of the World yeah, Cup. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, three things. It's the classic, and, but all the way, Kate can talk about this a lot more than I can. It's the classic fallacy. For them to not make it, this has to happen, and this has to happen, and this has to happen. You know, so people tend to say, well, that'll never happen because it's, it's three ends. The U.S. World Cup soccer team lost to Trinidad and Tobago 2-1. to one. Um, that was a very shocking loss. Matter of fact, the reason it's also shocking, this gets this is an interesting analytics question, is they knew going into the game they only had to tie to make it. 
So now, as we know, can't you just grind out a boring zero to zero tie game? Like put that you know, seems put to be 10... within the capability of soccer players because <laughs> exactly. so many games are just like that. Yeah. So <laughs> why you know they clearly are able to play that way. No, but this seems to me to be an example of a team that didn't understand loss functions. Truly, loss functions. Double entendre meant it. The loss of the game and the loss of not making the World Cup first time since 1986. I mean, this was a shocking defeat, but. The way I view it is, and I am a big soccer fan, a lot of it because my kids play soccer mm-hmm. and we watch a lot of English Premier League and all this now. If you can't, nothing personal, but they're not a world power. If you can't beat Trinidad and Tobago, the way I view it is, you shouldn't be in the World Cup. So they got what they deserved. But this was shocking yeah. that the that, that U.S. lost in a game where they didn't have to win. Just tie the game. <laughs> tie the game and you go on to the World Cup. So we can we could lament for a while, and there'd be lots of gnashing of teeth for a while. One of the most painful things is that it, there's this four-year lag, and it's just really unfortunate when the U.S. has been trying for decades to build momentum around the soccer program and fans to have that lag. We should have someone come on from the world of soccer, even our, our buddy Chris Alexopoulos, who produces soccer for ESPN. We could have someone come on and talk about what it means. I have heard that the under-17 team is strong, and that the U.S. has changed. This is actually written recently by Dan Wetzel, Dan Wetzel of Yahoo, great, great sports journalist, talking about how the training program has changed at the at the junior level, finally, to more closely mimic what happens around the around the country, around the world. So, for example, the Major League Soccer teams have these developmental programs where they'll have the kind of farm system, if you will, that the teams do in Europe. And the, some believe that that's going to finally give us the training and uniformity in the approach that's needed to develop good players. Yeah. I, I also, the question I would want to ask him is, you know, can a team play for a tie? And what does that, you know, what, you know, can you just say, <laughs> we're going to go out there, keep 10 men in the box, and you know what? You know, it, that's, they're not scoring the they, other team. They surely didn't. You know, you can imagine if they were the underdog, that would have been the strategy they would have Correct. taken. But they probably didn't feel like they needed to to play that way. But that's my point about know, loss functions. Loss also, function let's be says, clear. Even if they had won the game, they were not going to be one of the top seeds coming out of their bracket. So it was really in and win, and you were not going to be a top seed anyway. So it's not like you could say, well, let's play a little more aggressively. If we win, we could end up first in our bracket. Therefore, we'll get a better seed in the world. That wasn't happening anyway. There was nothing to play for in that way. So like I said, there should be some gnashing of teeth. For yeah, me. no, that's so right. Tell me about uh, the, 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 the kid stars at Pusilich. I, are you as impressed with him? Is is it all hype, or is he has he earned it? And it's a shame we're not going to see him for this World Cup, right? Yeah, this is no. a nineteen year old place for Dortmund, like a legitimate club. He scored the one goal last night. He had a big game against uh, Panama, was it? He couple? did. It was against Panama, four nothing win. Look, I think um, we haven't had a player like this, right? He, well, wait, we Clint, have players with promise, right? Well, that not like, even just you know. that. I mean, Josie Altador. Had huge promise yeah. at the same age. A lot of injuries have slowed him down, but it hasn't. You well, know, Freddie Adu before him. Freddie Adu, oh, yeah, Freddie Adu, Freddie Adu, Josie Altador. Okay. But also, you know, we have some players, you know, like Clint Dempsey and others who have scored a significant number of goals in significant World Cup. The thing about soccer, though, is that's uh, true in lots of sports. You know, football. They talk about you can take this player out of the game. You can do the same in soccer. 
you can do this. Except, except, except for, except, except well, for not, you know, you can't Ronaldo and Messi. You Those know. two are obviously yeah. generational talents. But uh, maybe, and maybe this guy is. In general, in soccer, you can take somebody out of the game if you're willing to, you know, let somebody else yeah. get more aggressive in the game. Right. So I, I still think it's great that you bring that up because what was to me the bigger story last night wasn't it was we're U.S. So obviously U.S. not making it. Argentina won and made it. Yeah. Could you imagine if Messi was not in the World Cup? I mean, just yeah. you think about the world ripple of that. To me, that was a bigger story worldwide. Argentina makes it than and, the U.S. doesn't didn't make it. he have a hat trick? I mean, it's, it, I didn't see the score. Goals, I think that he might have had like, They were really in contention to like get knocked out. And he basically they were really in contention yeah. not to get to well, get. I mean, to get knocked but, out. By the way, the last World Cup, the Netherlands missed the last World Cup. Yep. I mean, it does. It does happen. Right. I'm not saying it oh, justifies uh, there's the always. US. One or two really strong European countries or South yeah, American Chile, countries yeah, that don't make it. But the U.S. I think because has the comes... same. I think the U.S. has basically the same population as all the rest of its conference combined. It's also like the Patriots every year winning the AFC East. Who can you know? Of course they're going to win the AFC East. Let's put gonna. them in a real conference. <laughs> you know they're scraping by, barely getting into the playoffs, getting yeah. lucky in some games. You know, same thing. I'm no, it's, it's true. I'm it's true. It's true. So speaking of football, let's change gears and talk about games coming up this weekend. We are going to wrap up with some NFL picks, but let's talk college for a little while. The slate has been a little weak most weeks so far. It's kind of interesting how it hasn't quite heated up yet. And what are the big games this week? Well, you know, big is relative here. The <laughs> biggest games of the weekend. Let me give you let me give you one for each of four conferences because I do think there's some interesting games. And you know how you know how ESPN game has these like ridiculous catchphrases for the weekend, like, you know, prove it Saturday or what contender Saturday or whatever it is. <laughs> Here's my silly I'm going with Hypothesis Saturday. You think it's going to catch on? Yeah, Hypo- no, I mean, it's, it's well, Saturday. I mean, there, W Moneyball, man, it's a good trend. The, the, there are teams that we believe are legit, and they've got, they've got legitimate challenges this week. Let's find out whether they can do what we think they can do. So one in each conference. So Auburn is at LSU. People believe Auburn is um, a legitimate contender in, in the SEC. They're, you know, they're in the same division as Alabama, so that's tough. They took an early loss to Clemson, but since then they've been quite solid. That's a, that's a fascinating game to me because, as you know, LSU took an awful loss to Troy and then all of a sudden goes, I think it was at in Florida, goes ahead and beats Florida. Yeah, well, they barely beat Florida. I know, we don't I, no, take I'm much not of Florida. saying but that right. LSU's great. All I'm commenting on is, to me, that's a game, if Auburn is real, that's right. they should be able to beat a not great LSU team. That's exactly That's right. a in, fascinating. In, in exactly. LSU, right? That's right. At LSU, that's a great game. That's an the, interesting game. I think they all have that flavor, three of them in particular. So that's one. That's a seven-point line, by the way. They're supposed to get that done. Auburn done. Auburn yeah. by seven. Yeah. Wow. Georgia Tech at Miami. So this is um, for in the ACC. Miami, after their win at Florida State. They're undefeated, correct? They're Miami undefeated. is undefeated. They, they, yeah, they, 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 I, they missed a hurricane game, but they beat Florida State. People think they're legit. They are now the odds-on favorite to win the Coastal Division within the ACC, and they'd face probably Clemson in the, in the conference championship. Georgia Tech's feisty. Georgia Tech is a legit contender over there in the coastal this is a five and a half point line miami if they are her, who we want them to be who we think they might be needs to get that done but it's a real I, game i'm ignoring just the massey peabody system just for one the, second i'm giving you real lines by the way no no, no okay 
it, does that line seem small to you? If you told me Georgia Tech, I just don't. I haven't heard much about Georgia Tech this year. It just seems like that's a pretty small line. Miami, who's undefeated, beat Florida State, is only a five and a half point favorite over Georgia Tech. Right. So I do think you're picking up on the fact that Georgia Tech is completely off the radar so far yeah. this year. We have them ranked number twenty two. So okay, so this line is probably very consistent. In fact, you, yeah, are they higher than bad. Miami? Well, we have them. We have Georgia Tech at plus twelve and a half um, against an average team, and we we really like Miami. We have Miami number six in the country. But at that's what nine nine and a half? So that's seven and a half. That's seven points on a neutral field. We'd give them another couple, maybe three for being home field. So we're with you that that would be more like a ten point. Now maybe Tech was off. Maybe they get a point for buy or something. But it does look like that's a shorter line than we'd have expected. Well. I, it, yeah, that's an Eric's opportunity for the Bradlow system. Okay. All right. So moving to the Big Twelve, the the you know the game that's that that's a big game in in my life and in the country. Who can Texas play? Texas, Texas, Oklahoma. But that's you know that's, where's the game? It's always in Dallas. It's always in Dallas, and Texas is technically home, but it's always a neutral game. So that's a seven and a half point line. OU should win that game if if unless that Iowa State game means more than we think it does of course they they struggled against Baylor but probably more interesting for the conference unless Texas knocks OU off which could happen but TCU the hypothesis Saturday game is TCU at Kansas State mm. is TCU legit right Kansas State is always a tough out especially in Manhattan can they go up to Manhattan they're six point favorites I, that's a that's a that's a game they could lose that's a game they could lose and that would just push the Big 12 deeper into chaos out west this is the least interesting of these hypothesis Saturday games, but USC is hosting Utah. Everybody thinks that USC is going to walk to the South Division title. Am I they, right that USC has at least one loss, maybe two at this point? They have only one, just the one loss. Okay, um, but they came close to losing against Texas and have looked less than. I mean, look, they're fine. They went out. They're going. They went out. They're going to go to the playoff almost certainly. They've only got one loss. Utah's the only team in the South that could that could rival them. It's a thirteen point line. It shouldn't happen. But if USC is going to have trouble in their division, it's going to be Saturday. So those are the little testers around the country. But there are country. no like top 25 games, teams against each other. Nothing particularly mm-hmm. stands out I, this I week. I just gave you the four that was best it. games. Wow. There's Texas A&M going against your Florida. Aggies are going across to play Florida, but Aggies, you know. That's why. Do you know where college game day is this week? I know. It's a... Like Villanova, a H- James Madison. Yeah, H- HBS school. Um, so they must... That's where college wow. game day yeah. is this week. Right. The Villanova so it's, it's, James it's, it's, Madison game. It's, it's a slowly. light slate this weekend. Is what well, that's we're not as light as it has been. They did a New yeah. York City show a couple of weeks ago. They that, did, and then they went to TCU last week. I mean, it's they've been a bit of a. To be honest with you, it's been a little bit of a marquee-less season. There's there's some 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 high points, but I think we're lining up for an incredible back half. I think November is just going to be ridiculous. But that's college football this week, from what I can tell. Um, any anything that anything you guys have left on the college football front? Anybody any team that's or player? Are you excited about this Saquon Barkley just around the corner? Have you been to a Penn State game? I've never been to a Penn State game. How can we live in Pennsylvania and not go? We at really least should. Every now we should day? have a field trip. To uh, so I'm married State. to a Penn Stater, and uh, yes, I've been to a Penn State football games. Uh-huh. Um, it's really a great experience. Wonderful mm-hmm. thing to go to, um, and I think Saquon Barkley. What was fascinating to me was uh, I think you guys all know this maybe in the first half of the past game that they played, which they won. I think it was against Northwestern. He had minus one yards in the first half net. Mm-hmm. And then in the second half, he meant business. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this guy is an incredible talent. Mm-hmm. I mean, his size and speed. But I just thought his demeanor, like he came out in the second half and just, you know, really just 
it, it just showed me a lot. He didn't seem I didn't see him pouting on the sideline at the end of the first half. I didn't see him screaming at the coaches. No. I mean, he's like he had like 10 touches for minus 1 yard. Mm-hmm. It wasn't good, but it was a great second half. Yeah, I I'm a believer in Saquon Barkley. That it that worries me some about Penn State if Northwestern could decide to shut down Barkley and they couldn't exploit it through the air. Cuz mm-hmm. a team shouldn't be able to take good a point. player of his quality out of the game without really opening but, up other but, possibilities. But please yeah. also remind me of the please remind me of the name of the quarterback. For, McSorley? McSorley. Hmm. I actually thought he played a, I I actually am really bullish on McSorley. All I right. thought he looked really good in that game and I think back to teams will be able to shut down the elite teams will be able to shut down Barkley. Now the question is, what can does McSorley McSorley make him pay for? It? And I mean, and I like, I mean, you have a lot of experience watching the college game. It does take a. Lo- I mean, certainly I'm a more experienced professional game. It takes teams a while, often a half, to kind of adjust to a particular game strategy, right? Sure. Some don't so, adjust at all. Well, right. Yeah. Some don't adjust at all. So I mean, you know, the, the fact that. Penn State was not able to immediately exploit. I think that's a little overstated because guys, they could the the basic, the simplest thing that happens is they drop an extra man down in the box. Yeah, right. And that can be exploited immediately. Immediately. They can shift. They can play. They can shift. You know, at the line of scrimmage or during the play. I know we're going to talk about pros in just a second, but this is a perfect transition. Boy, was I wrong about a particular college player who's transitioned to the pros this year? No, not Deshaun Watson. I wasn't wrong about him. But we're we're talking running back. Ah. Oh, Le- Leonard Fournette. Yeah, Leonard Fournette. Yeah. Man, was I wrong because I was like, How, "Look, man, teams are stopping this guy." Oh, yeah, he and was every running. scout said this guy's going to be a beast in the NFL. And you know what? This guy's incredible. Yeah, he, made, watched, he made Pittsburgh look like a wet paper towel, man. Mortal. He ran and right through. Them. I start to think of Saquon Barkley. That you know, this is why you need advanced stats because look, Saquon Barkley is not going to have the sexiest numbers using traditional metrics. But I look I look at him, and I'm, I'm not making this Leonard Fournette mistake again. Everybody <laughs> said Fournette was going to be great, and I just said his numbers are pedestrian in college. Because, yeah, cause, yeah, put 10 men in the box, you can stop Leonard Fournette. Well, it's surprising to me that, they, that the Steelers couldn't do that, given that the QB for the Jaguars is Bortles. Correct. I mean, how, how, could, you, how could you not like, just completely load up on Fournette sufficiently to stop him, given that you're not really exposing yourself? But apparently, I just thought I, that's the he closed. threw like fifteen passes. I mean, right. what NFL team only throws fifteen passes? I agree, but Fournette. That's why you knew when I was talking about Barkley. I was thinking yeah. about Fournette, and I'm going to tell you, this is an incredible player. He's, well, what, yeah. You know, he is a bowling ball. I mean, they, they just phys- physically, you knew he was ready for the pro game. Earl what, Campbell. What, well, what about like Kareem Hunt? Yeah, who comes out of a a, a, a group of five school and is a small guy, and yet he's having. As big an impact as Fournette? I think part of it is uh, the system he's in. And part of it is, I, I apologize, there's the other really fast guy on Kansas City who's... Tyreek Hill? Yeah, Tyreek Hill. So part of it is, you know, it's like, you know, it's my... You put Hunt where he's the number one guy. He's fine. But you put him on a team where he might be the third or fourth best at the moment receiver that you have to cover. You can't double everybody on the field. So he's getting one-on-one with linebackers. He's way too fast and way too good for that. Mm -hmm. I think he's incredible. But he's incredible in the Andy Reid. Remember the Andy Reid system. You're not throwing the ball deep a lot of the time, although Alex Smith has been doing more of it. You throw the short to medium pass, and then this guy's one-on-one against a 4-7 guy, and he's a 4-3 guy. But as a running back, he's impressive given that he's not this this bowling ball 
guy specimen yeah. that that Fournette is, and 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 especially coming out of Toledo or Akron, maybe whichever yeah. of those programs he came out of, as a smaller guy. And you put him out in open space, though open space one on one four three beats four seven. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. the speed. All right, fellas, uh, it's time to shift gears to the NFL and uh, do a weekly feature around here. Um, the look around the slate got some Moneyball matchups. Curious to hear your preferences on or your thoughts on what game you might believe in. Moneyball matchups. All right, so we do. We're now into buy season. We've actually got some teams on buy, so a little bit smaller slate than we've had. But looking around the league, who do you like? Well, I I, I think uh, we all looked ahead in the schedule to that Broncos-Giants matchup on Sunday night as something that would be a little bit more competitive than it probably will be. I don't know. Um, that's that's one. I what, what is it? The line is 12 points. 12. It's so amazing to me that the Giants are so bad. I mean, but it's, I've heard it's, that it's, it's you're delicious. potentially the wide receiver for the Giants this yeah. week. I mean, <laughs> so Brandon true. Marshall out for the season, obviously. Odell uh, Beckham Jr. Yeah, out I mean, for the season. I mean, and I think, and I think I mean, Eli is uh, Eli, though he's still playing, is seems to be out for the season as well. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I guess, um, <laughs> I guess, I guess I'm I'm going to uh, I'm actually going to take that as my Moneyball matchup, and I think. Though I have no real quantitative reason for this, I think the Giants will play a closer game to Denver um, than the line is suggesting. I, I think I think the Giants will not win that game, but I think it will be a but closer match. Now, why than, are you picking that game? So you you like that not because of interest in the game, but because you like the edge. Yeah, that's like right. That's too right. Big, I, I, too big I, a line. I, I think, think there's I think there's two uh, games this upcoming week where the line is 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 too ambi- like is too big. It's the Giants and the Broncos. I think the Giants are, though not good. I I I, I think they are, you know, the defense I, can hold them in I there. I think the Denver the defense can hold them in there, and I think Denver is not. I still am not completely sold on 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 Denver's offense. So, um, so that's one of them, and the other one is the Patriots Jets. I think that I mean I again, I think that the Patriots have a 10, 10, 12 points, nine and, nine and a half. half. Even without the Jets, like somehow having a winning record, I don't know how that exactly happens. But even without that, the Jets, even at their worst, always play the Patriots tough. It's always a competitive game. How, it always how comes does some Peabody have something Patriots like that. Jets? I mean, we're talking about. I assume the number one team versus number twenty-seven or whatever we are. What's the? Uh... Yeah, it's it's. It, we would make it. We would make it around a, a seven-point line, I think, without looking at you know injuries or buys or anything. And so that on a neutral are, field. On, no, this one, this on, in New York. So we we're with Shane on that. We think that line is too too big. You know, I don't. Yeah. I mean, that's I'm doing on the fly. What, what, but, what about like Broncos Giants? Is that is that line? Because that that's a very large line for. I mean, I. And but I again, understand. does Massey Peabody now take into account injuries? Only quarterback injuries. Okay, because we have yeah. So here's the. I have two games just quickly. The two that have struck to me, which are games against I think good teams. I have to say, Eagles at Panthers. Eagles at Panthers. Yeah. I think that'll it's be a, a good I, game. It, well, I'll use I'll use my colleague Cade Massey's words. It's hypothesis testing time. <laughs> We're going to find out if the Eagles are any good because I, if they're they could, I could imagine a scenario where the Panthers are all over them. I think the Panthers are good. I think they're a good team this year. I think it's going to be a tough game for the Eagles. That looks I, like the game of the week. It looks like the game of the week. 
The other quick game, of course, I'm not going to say the Bucks game, Packers at Vikings. Yeah. I think we're going to find out a lot about the Packers in that game and who's quarterbacking for the Vikings. That's the other thing. I'm a little surprised the line's only three and a half if, you know, what is it, Case Keenum, isn't that? I mean, is who, Bradford out? If it's Keenum, then it's going to be a bigger line than that. If Is Bradford gone now? Well, he went, did you he, see him last week? I saw he couldn't some really of it. play. He he can't play. Did He's he, physically. Did he, did he not, play the whole game? No, he played about three quarters of the first half, and then his coaches had to pull him. They oh, wow. had to pull him. He couldn't go. Okay, so that line is tough. But that, I love the NFC Central matchup. Classic NFC Central matchup. Um, I'm going to add Steelers at Chiefs. Yeah, uh, the Steelers. We don't know quite what to make of. They looked strong for a while. Then with Roethlisberger's performance the other night. And Chiefs, other exactly the the opposite. We we think that they're great, and here they are hosting a big team. Four point line. I mean, it's not a big edge, but I do I do like the Chiefs, and I like the game more than anything. All right, guys, how about it? The crew's back together. That was a fun two hours. I would be very happy to do that for the next two hours. Very much so. Um, uh, we we we're going to be back next Wednesday. I believe we're going to have this whole crew around for a little while. But uh, big thanks to Dion Simpkins for man of the board. Big thanks to Patty Hall for being the boss lady in charge, running the show. Matt Dodds, we need you back. Matt's doing a remote show. Not that we don't love Patty, but we hope, hope the remote show goes well, and our producer, Matt Dodds, will be back. And Adi Weiner. Adi, we always miss you when you're not around here, but we know we'll get you back here eventually. That has been another two hours of Wharton Moneyball. We'll do it every week. We'll do it next Wednesday. Come back and enjoy us. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Enjoy your sports.